Hello and welcome to the After Dinner Podcast. My name is John Keeley, and this is the podcast extension for ROI Show 500. Our guest today is Dr. Sarah Butler, King George III Professor of History of English History at Ohio State University, who is also our second guest ever on ROI, who is going to be talking to us about her book, Pain, Penance, and Protest, Pianfort A. Dure in Medieval England. The history buffs join us today, of course, Jay Swords and Rick Sweet. Rick, you get to start us off. And I am honored on this 500th show. Uh, We have a special treatment for you for all these years. Uh, We got a pebble, just to let you know. And rocks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Jay's bringing in the 800 pounds right now. I'm excited. (laughs) He's already got the door. (laughs) Which bathroom did you take it from? Are they igneous or metamorphic rocks? Right, right. Sarah, with all jocularity aside, (laughs) uh, it, it seems like in the broadcast portion, talking about the history and application of this uh, this process, to me it seems like it's being used as a form of punishment. You know, you're, mm-hmm. you stand silent, so we're going to do this to you because because we brought charges against you. You've got to be guilty. Am, am I delusional? So here's the thing. They, they would argue in this period that it's actually not exactly a punishment, although the word pen translates out to punishment. So there's clearly something punishing about it. The problem is, though, um, if a person doesn't plead, then they cannot have a trial. So you're not actually being punished for whatever the felony is that you've been accused of, because there's been no sort of conviction of any sort. But quite frankly, I think it is a punishment, and I think that punishment is for contempt of court. In particular, uh, uh, an unwillingness to recognize the king's jurisdiction is very much a form of contempt. And so I think, if anything, this is punishing a person's contempt in the hopes of convincing that person to no longer be contemptuous. Okay, Jay. Sarah, is there a difference uh, at all between how men and women are treated uh, within this system? Um, I'm just curious, you know, do they are there distinctions made because you're male or female? So we have to put aside, again, the instance of Margaret Clitheroe. I know I started with her, but she does seem to be an exceptional situation. Um, but one thing that I think is important, hardly any women end up going through this. And the few that do, it is clear they are put to the diet, i.e. this alternating days of bread and water uh, and gross bread and water. Um, And they are generally not subjected to the pressing with weights. It also seems clear that women are more likely to be declared um, miraculous survivors of this which, quite frankly, I mean, I think means that the jailer was actually feeding them on the fly. Oh, geez. Okay. Um, so a question here. Um, we really haven't brought up the issue of the age of these individuals. I mean, of course, uh, I doubt, doubt very much that kids were involved. But again, um, are there any records of individuals in like 15, 16, 17 uh, being put through this process, or was it pretty much for an older crowd? So, unfortunately, I could not tell you. 
um, there are no ages recorded whatsoever in any of these records. I can say that they're not kids, i.e. anyone below the age of 12. Okay. Because below the age of 12, you're not going to be held accountable for something like this. Um, however, after the age of 12, they don't really make any effort to report your age in the records. They're really brief accounts. Uh, how many cases of this did you come across? I mean, um, I, we kind of mentioned before that, you know, not as many mm-hmm. women as men. Uh, do you have a mm-hmm. guesstimate of how many, how many times this was carried out? So I have about 750 cases from a 300-year period. Okay. That is not a whole heck of a lot. No. Jay. Sarah, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm wondering, um, so this process is used. It's used successfully. This, the person ultimately pleads. Um, what kind of punishments are we then looking at? Um, is there anything in the medieval world that's the equivalent of... Um, uh, sort of being uh, given, you know, time served as you were, uh, you know, I'm going to make the, the punishment a little less because you already went through whatever it was you went through? So, not exactly. So, here's the thing. All felonies in England have the same punishment, which is execution. However, I think it's really important to recognize that about 80 to 85 percent of people who are tried are actually acquitted. Very few people are actually executed in this period. And with a lot of these situations that I looked at, um, when I could find them in the later records with their trial, they were actually acquitted. So the real thing is, what were the jurors thinking? It is entirely possible that the jurors were sitting there saying, this person has been through enough. Sure, they're not innocent, but we can still acquit them. Rick. Sarah, uh, can you uh, graphically and gruesomely uh, outline the techniques for pen fort et dur that were used? Uh, So the pressing with weights, okay, this is one of the things that we're still trying to figure out exactly how it's done. We look at the Margaret Clitheroe case, and it's a door on the chest and all the weight is put there. And that study I suggested uh, done by the two scientists, they have said that's the best thing because a door in particular would distribute the the sense of the heaviness around, and your chest can actually handle um, an awful lot of weight. The medieval records don't really tell us much, but I did find one where actually they suggested the best thing to do was to put the weights on your arms and legs, which would have been much more painful. But they don't talk about how heavy those weights have to be. So some of that is really hard. Um, I do know, though, by the time we get into, like, late 14th century, the, they had also incorporated tying um, the person's limbs up so that essentially you are in the shape of a cross. And I'm not sure if that had any sort of specific symbolism. Um, you know, were they trying to make a person actually be more religious or think more religiously that way? Um, but that's certainly part of it. All right, you have mentioned that there have been individuals that kind of took this in the role of a martyr, uh, and mm-hmm. some of them, you said, re- received more fame than others. 
Were there mm-hmm. instances that you come across where someone is trying to play the role of the martyr and the church comes along and says, now that's some bogus. So, I mean, did you ever hear the church come along and say, because they, they thumbs up and a lo- thumbs down mm-hmm. a lot of things back then. Uh, have you mm-hmm. ever noticed one where the church came in and either justified or say, no, it's not? So um, I think it's actually important to recognize that the process of canonization actually came quite late. That is something that also is developing during the 12th century. So a lot of the early saints that exist never even went through a canonization process. They became saints through popular acclamation. The cheaters. People decided they were saints and started going to their tombs and worshiping them. So that's actually where things began. Um, and yeah, there are lots of instances where the people have decided that someone is a saint, and word comes down from on high that they've got to discourage them by shutting down the church and refusing to allow people in to the burial site for that person. Um, so yeah, I mean, there, there are. And I'm just thinking like rebels in particular, like Simon of Montfort, for example, um, I, you know, another rebel in the English scenario against Henry III, his brother-in-law, um, people had decided that he was probably a saint as well, and they were very keen to try and worship him. But the problem is, when t- the people decide that someone is a saint, because they have riv- risen up against the king, strangely enough, the king is never too impressed by that. <laughs> and the king's got his connection. Yeah. Jay! <laughs> Sarah, I'm also wondering, in amongst the 750 folks you've talked about rebels, uh, in mm-hmm. England in particular, we're talking about a conquered population in the Anglo-Saxons first. Later on, the Welsh are going to join that that uh, group. Uh, we're eventually mm-hmm. going to have at least some intermingling of Scots here, there, and everywhere. So is there an ethnic or, or a conquered people's uh, bias in terms of using this particular process? So I actually never found anyone of the ethnic minorities that way who was subjected to Pen Forte Dur. And I think a big part of it is um, standing mute was not part of their tradition. It's instead something that I think is very particularly English. But having said that, the Crown is also very keen to mostly deal with the Welsh or the Scots, for example, as traitors whenever possible. And of course, they get the absolute worst traitors' death, like the, the being dragged to the site of execution, um, being hanged, being disemboweled, having your entrails burnt in front of your eyes, um, then also being decapitated and, and quartered. Okay, Rick. <laughs> oh, and happy Halloween to yeah, all. I was going to say, and yeah. how do you follow yeah. that? <laughs> oh, hey, yeah. you asked. I did, I did. <laughs> hey, we, you know, full disclosure, we're, you're right. Sarah, curious, you mentioned in the broadcast portion, the king occasionally stepped in and said, stop, they're forgiven, let them go. Uh, what prompted the, the king to do such a thing? So um, I think that's mostly intercession, i.e. someone important has found out about these situations, has decided it is miraculous, and goes to the king to beg him to um, pardon the person. Intercession 
was a way for people to actually sort of declare that they are important and have an influence on the king. And often we see it's like the queen who's doing intercession, but some sort of lord or somebody out there who just wants to prove to everybody that he's got the king's ear. And this is a great way of doing it. Okay. Now, um, this is the 500th show, and I've got a little twist to the conclusion. Um, Years ago, we did one of your shows, and if I recall, we did a show on you on a process of burial or something that was one of the articles that you had. Do you remember Mm -hmm. that at all? Was it Burial of Suicide? Yes. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is we had recorded that show in December, and I have a massive Irish christmas party at my dad's house and then my house and the night before mm-hmm. an uncle of mine who's very educated and i we got pretty drunk drunk and we started screaming and yelling and i never wanted to see the no good rotten bum again blah 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 but i had forgotten that night that i had stuck one of your articles in on his car dashboard when he drove to stay with my grandmother so the next morning he's coming to my house and i don't want the bum in my house at all because i'm still mad at him and he comes up from the backside and don't see him he goes and he's sober i read that article by that dr sarah butler that you put in my car i always had a great interest in england because he's a lawyer english law and how they dealt with property afterwards and that is one of the best things that i have ever read and i'm numb because i wanted to kick him out of my house but after he talked nicely about your article and he talked about it for the entire night over turkey and stuffing so he goes and then he passed it around and sure enough as jay knows and rick knows our family passes readings all around so it went from christmas to about march all his brothers and sisters read it and they thought it was a fantastic article so i had to bring that up tonight for the 500 show you brought our family back together well, again. and i have to <laughs> I'm, I'm happy for you. Yeah. Sarah, you know, earlier in the show, we asked you about your mental state. You can take anything you want from that story. Well, I'm no, she's not mad. She's mad at one Harvard psychologist, not my family, though. So. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. We I've would... only got so much anger to go around. Don't worry. We would, I must admit, like on our second show, we found a wonderful um, gem with your uh, publications, and we are thrilled to have them on for our 500. Thank you very much for everything, Doc Sarah. Uh, well, I hope to be invited back for the 600. You will be. You definitely will. Uh, or next Halloween, whichever comes first. Uh, we would okay. like to thank our noted guest for the 500th show, Dr. Sarah Butler, King George III Professor of English History at Ohio State University, who talked to us about her book, Pain, Penance, and Protest, Pain Fort Adur in Medieval England. The History Buffs for today's show uh, were Jay Swords and Rick Sweet. ROI can be found at 9.30 p.m. Friday nights on KALA Radio or on the web at TuneIn.com. If you're looking for older programs, you can find them at SoundCloud.com. Just put KALA Radio in the search and click on the first icon and scroll down to find nearly a decade of ROI shows. Um, You can also find ROI on all your favorite streaming platforms. ROI is recorded at Station KALA, St. Ambrose University.